Welcome to Living with Reality, a podcast featuring archived teachings and modern conversations with Dr. Robert Svoboda, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Living with Reality explores Ayurveda and other wisdom traditions of India, which Dr. Svoboda has been studying for nearly 50 years. For more information, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dr. Svoboda. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A. Hello and welcome to Living with Reality. I'm Paula Crossfield, your host and Dr. Svoboda's media manager. This week on the podcast, we have part one of two of a talk that Dr. Sabota gave at the sanctuary in Costa Rica in 2018, all about the senses. This was part of a longer workshop on the senses, and this talk is about sight and the fire element. And he gets into possession and talking about even things that would come to be the microbiome talks that he gave with Dr. Scott Blossom. So if you're interested in studying more with Dr. Svoboda, you can go to drsvoboda.teachable.com. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A. And you'll find a lot of courses that relate to this material, including one on Agni, which is the fire element. There's also a Tantra course that really relates to these things that he's going to be talking about. And you can also listen back to a previous episode of the podcast where I interviewed Dr. Saboda about possession, and these really complement each other. So here's part one, and then the next time you will hear part two. We hope you enjoy. It's quite possible that some of you had the same experience this morning that I did in yoga class, an experience that I regularly have and that I have to say is somewhat uh, mildly frustrating, mildly depressing. That is that I find that while I can easily do vrakshasana, where you're standing on one leg and you have the other leg bent so it is touching your inner thigh. I can easily do that if my eyes are open. I cannot easily do so that so easily if my eyes are closed. And for me, that is just one more indication of just how important the visual sense is to the human being. How much we use our visual sense, for example, to anchor ourselves to the earth element, how much we employ it to provide stability to ourselves. Did anyone else, does anyone else have this problem or is it just me? Okay, well, I'm glad to see this, not just me. Because misery loves company. And I mean misery, that would be, an, be a, a bit excessive to call it misery, but um, it is certainly... Um, It's hard to um, be self-congratulatory about, you know, even if you are somebody who's been doing yoga for how many years is it now for me? 45 years. To still, after 45 years, not be able to stand on one leg with my eyes closed. Oh, well. My point is that the visual sense is paramount for human beings. And this has been recognized by many people in many places for a long, long time. And it has certainly been recognized in Sanskrit. You probably heard um, uh, Liz use the word drishti this morning, which means uh, sight. And it means roughly the same thing as darshana. They come from the same root, which means to see. Darshana also means philosophy in Sanskrit. It means both sight and philosophy. So not only, is, not only is it the case that seeing is believing, it's the case that whatever it is that you are able to see is going to determine what you are able to believe. Um, Suddenly I realized I want to write down one more thing that I don't forget to say at some point. 
Thank you. So, in my opinion, and I cannot guarantee that this is scientific fact, but of course nowadays, who cares about facts? Facts are, this can be an alternative fact. Science, who cares? Science is, after all, a, just, uh, and it is true that science is not at all as objective as people think it is. It's very much, and there is reason to believe that, in fact, uh, we are recreating the universe from its earliest moments simply by virtue of perceiving it because of the na bizarre nature of quantum reality. Um, so, the fact that um, sight is so important is, in my opinion at least, because of the fact that humans are, so far as we know on this planet, the only animal or plant or mineral that has actually been able to harness fire. And to be able to, to do things with fire. Other animals may have noticed this. I remember seeing the Jungle Book in New Mexico, and um, King Louis talking about the red flowers and how much he wanted to have the red flowers, but it was the humans that had the red flowers, and that's why they were so much more powerful than the other animals, because otherwise humans are not very impressive animals. We can't smell anything. We have no strength. But we have two things that have caused us to advance to where we have... Uh, occupied the entire planet. And that is, number one, we can cooperate together, and number two, we have fire. So we've had fire initially, maybe a million and a half years ago, and then seriously started using it a million years ago, and seriously, seriously started using it, you know, three or four or 500,000 years ago. But all during that time, this was something that we had that other animals did not. So this split us off that was, there were probably other ways that we have been split off or one thing becoming bipedal, et cetera. But this was an even more important sort of situation, not only because it allowed us to expand the range of things that we could eat, uh, kill a lot of parasites, uh, protect us from saber-toothed tigers and other, uh, and rabid bears and things like that that might attack us at night when we are even more helpless than we are during the day. And so the fire was very useful, but even more useful than that is it gave us something to do at night. Because, yes, there are the stars, and certainly, hopefully, we will be able to see um, uh, Venus and Mercury tomorrow morning in their current conditions of brilliance. But also, the fire is always moving, um, it's always providing new forms and new colors for us to see. And as people started to look into the fire, they started to gain uh, an ability to do something that um, other animals seem to have greater difficulty in doing, and that is have that quality of self-awareness, that quality of um, being conscious of being conscious, that the fire itself possesses, the fire being something that has to be brought to life, has to be fed in order to stay alive, and once it's not fed anymore, it will die, just like any other living organism. So the fire is a living organism. It came into our world. We established a relationship with it, and of course, um, the chief uh, sense that one uses with the fire, naturally you also can tell whether you're hot or not, but the chief sense you use with the fire is the visual sense. So the more that we built fires and stared at them, the more the visual sense became important. And gradually it became the central thing around which the human organism arranged itself. The, the thing around the... Um, <clears throat> the so-called assemblage point, the thing around which we assemble ourselves. And um, you will note that 
in the body, the seat of the fire element is here at the Manipura. And um, this also, not coincidentally, happens to be the place where your intuition is located. Because this is the place where when you were in the womb, you were getting your prana. And everything is prana. Swami Muktananda's guru, Swami Nityananda, wrote a book years and years ago called the Chidakasha Gita. And in the Chidakasha Gita, he says, Vedanta is prana. They are not different from one another. And studying Vedanta means to fill all of the nadis, all the channels of subtle circulation in your organism with prana. That is the Vedanta, the end of the Veda. So Vedanta is not a bunch of people talking about how they are equivalent to the supreme reality. It's all about actually becoming so full of prana that prana is doing the movement and prana is experiencing the reality and you are along for the ride. So here is a good place to draw a distinction between positive possession and negative possession. Positive possession is possession by things that are useful. And so who knows what was going on before then, but once the fire started, came into the picture, humans started to be possessed by the fire. There is no free barbecue. There are no free tamales. Um, and uh, even potatoes are not free. Maybe they should be, but they're not. Nothing is free. So we started working with the fire. The fire started doing things for us, but we had to start doing things for the fire. Number one, we had to keep bringing it to life. We had to keep feeding it. But at the same time, the fire started to possess us. And the fire started to, everything has its own agenda. And the fire's agenda is to keep burning, find new places to burn, find new things to burn, and burn some more. Because once it's been brought to life, it wants to stay alive like everybody else. So the fire took over the human being, and the human being started spreading fire in all directions. This is what human beings do. They get taken over by something and they start working with that thing and spreading it in all directions. If you have not read it already, um, a very interesting book that will give you a nice perspective on just one simple way in which humans are being possessed by things is the botany of desire by the appropriately named, even if slightly different spelling, Michael Pollan. And it, it talks about four different plant species which have been clever enough to take over for the benefit of the species. And humans derive some benefit from them also because otherwise, uh, why would they? Humans are looking for their own benefit and the, everyone has his, her, or its own agenda. And these four species are the uh, cannabis, the... Uh, apple, the uh, potato, potato, the potato, and the tulip. And the tulip, of course, because of the extremely famous tulipomania that took uh, hold of the Netherlands back in, I believe, the 17th century and caused a gigantic asset bubble in tulip bulbs. And to the extent that when the bubble was at, and if you are Bubbles are an important part of economic reality at all times, but especially today. Um, so at the height of the bubble, one particularly rare tulip bulb was sufficient to purchase a house on one of the most prominent canals in Amsterdam. And as soon as the bubble burst, the value of tulip bulbs went back down from owning a house to simply being nice things that you could put in the ground and get pretty flowers from that would provide you some color in the Netherlands where there is not often a whole lot of natural color other than gray because of being overcast and sort of rainy. And then, of course, everybody who had invested in tulip bulbs and thought that they had a bright future ended up with a bright future in the form of tulips. Otherwise, they were simply left holding their bulbs. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. So, 
It's quite possible humans were being possessed by other things before fire, but certainly by the time we got to fire, fire was something that started possessing us and started causing us to look at, paying attention to ways of all the things that are involved with what kind of wood should we be burning and what sort of things will burn and how much do we have and do we need to get more before there is the snowfall, the torrential rain or the whatever it started to shift the way that humans did things. Before that, whoever bothered with accumulating wood, unless you were trying to build a lean-to or something. Suddenly now, wood becomes wood or sticks or something burnable becomes a lot more important because we have to have it in order to be able to keep alive our friend who is doing all these wonderful things for us. So... We could certainly argue that from the perspective of the human being, fire has been, generally speaking, a positive um, possession. Generally, because, of course, people have misused, misused and continue to misuse fire. Not just arsonists, but people using firearms and fire in any kind of way. Um, as I am fond of commenting, would you hold your screen up for a moment, please? This is an example of Fire. Why fire? Because the subtle element of fire is in Sanskrit called urupa tanmatra, and rupa means form. So think about the fact that since a million years, people have been staring at the fire all day long, and many people still had were actually building open fires for practical purposes into even even in the U.S. until 50 or 60 years ago. My aunt, who died last year at age 99, uh, used to reminisce about how when she and her husband had their dairy, and this would have been the late 40s in central Texas, southern Texas, um, there was still no electricity there. So they would, if they wanted to be warm in the winter at 4 a.m. when they were out milking and they wanted to see what they were doing, they had to build a fire. So even back then, people were paying attention to fire. Okay, not that many people, but there were still people, including my aunt, who were having to build fires for practical purposes. And there's still many parts of the world where people still have to build fires in order to stay warm, cook their food, etc. But a lot of us have not been connected to fire other than the occasional fireplace and maybe a campfire here and there for 60 years or 80 years or 100 years or something, which compared to a million years is not so long. One one thousandth of one percent of that period of time. So we have tremendous momentum in the direction of paying attention to the fire, but now we don't have fires to look at. So other than the videos of a a fireplace and the Yule log burning that you people may occasionally watch on Christmas Day, what do we have that provides us the same sort of thing that fire does? We have the screen because it is providing us color and change and form and forms that are change color and form on repeatedly and quickly, just like fire does. What it doesn't provide, of course, is heat, and it doesn't really provide light. There's a little bit of backlighting, but what it does require is the same thing that what the fire requires is that our attention be transmitted into it. It's important to remember that it is an immutable law of reality, at least for human beings, that wherever your attention goes, your prana goes also. So all of this time that we were building fires and paying attention to the fire, we were strengthening the fire element with our prana. So the fire element was doing nice things for us, but it was also being fed not just by logs and and twigs, it was being fed by our collective prawn as well. So the prawn of the entire species has been co-evolving the fire and us for this past million years on Earth. Now, million years sounds like a long time, but Earth is five billion years old-ish, unless, of course, you follow the alternative concept that it was created in the year 6000 BC at 12 noon, whatever Bishop Usher came up with. So um, a million years compared to five billion years is, uh, again, you know, one five one thousandth of the period of time that the planet has been around. So the fire element itself 
has just in very recent times, geologically, been able to start evolving itself. So the fire is pretty excited too. The fire may have been waiting all this time for something to become clever enough to harness it and was rooting for Prometheus or or whoever you would like to believe was the being that assisted human beings to get possessed by the fire. So it's quite possible that not only did that start us on the path of having our visual sight be in charge of our ability to perceive whatever we can perceive in the world, but also started us on the, um, on the path of being um, possessed. It's hard to tell. Certainly it is the case that each one of us is being possessed by our by the fact that each one of us is a manifestation of our ancestors. Manifestation of our ancestors via our genetic material. And yes, all the epigenetics and everything, but you wouldn't have epigenetics if you didn't have genetics. So the genetics are being provided to you. It's a co-creation between the earth and the, the earth and the physical reality and the, we will call it the sky, since it is not the earth. Everything that's not the earth is the sky on our planet. And the earth and the sky. So yes, the job of the human being is to act as a nice conduit between the earth and the sky so that there can be a good connection, so there can be communication, so that the earth and the sky can continue to co-evolve with one another. And that connection is one that is Um, being facilitated by the fire element because the fire element is the thing that is in charge of uh, transforming physical reality things into non-physical reality things. And this is reflected in the Vedas, the ancient Hindu books on reality of knowledge. And the Vedas, um, uh, in Sanskrit, there is one, one uh, punctuation mark. It is a very simple punctuation mark. It is called a dunda, which means a straight up and down line. And that indicates the end of things. There are no capital letters, there are no paragraph marks, nothing like that. So if you want to have an indication of what's important, normally if you're writing something, you will put it Sometimes, occasionally at the end, but most of the time, if it's at the end, it is at the end because it was at the beginning to begin with. So usually the first word or the first few words in something is the most important thing. And if it is the first word or few words in a book, you should remember that with every other line in that book that you read. Everything is being created in that book from the perspective of that first word or phrase. So there are four Vedas. The first Veda is the Rig Veda. There are 10 mandalas in the Rig Veda. The first mandala is the first mandala. The first, the first mandala has many hymns. There is a hymn number one. The first hymn has a number of verses. There is a verse number one. Verse number one has a number of words. There is word number one. Word number one, well, word number zero is Om, but that doesn't count because that includes the entire manifested and unmanifested universe. So that really is a cross between zero and infinity. But the first word after Om is Agni, which means fire. We see the word Agni in words like ignite in English. It's the same Indo-European root. So Agni. And the first phrase in the Veda is Agnim Ile Purohitam. Agni is indeed the Purohita. And a Purohita is a sort of priest who is in charge of trans of, of making the transfer between this world and the next world. And the word Purohita um, probably is 
not derived by this folk etymology, but the folk etymology is um, uh, a perfectly valuable alternative fact. Puraha in Sanskrit means either east or before, because, of course, east is where things are happening before they happen. Before the sun comes up, you're looking at the east, it comes up there. Paschat means either west or afterwards. So before and after, east and west. And hita means that which is appropriate, useful, beneficial, going to help you out to move in the direction you want to be helped out to move in. So the definition of Ayurveda, or one definition of Ayurveda in the Charaka Samhita is hita hitam sukkam dukkam ayustase hita hitam. Hita ahita. Hita and ahita. Hita means that which is going to help you out. Ahita means that which is not going to be useful, not going to be beneficial, not going to move you in the direction you want to go. In the context of, for Ayurveda, sukha and dukkha. Sukha means happiness, ease, health, everything working well. Dukkha means misery, disturbance, dissatisfaction, displacement, and a bunch of other dis words. So dukkha is a dis experience, and sukha is a the word uh, the prefix su appears in English as eu eutrophy eudaimonium, you stress, etc. So sukha is good. Literally in Sanskrit, sukha means good space. Literally in Sanskrit, dukkha means bad space. Where there is earth, there is space. If there was only earth, it would be space. We wouldn't even bother talking about earth because it would only be earth. If there was only space, we wouldn't bother talking about space. But there is earth and there is space. And there's a bunch of stuff in between earth and space, but basically there's earth and there's space. These two things are relatively stable. Space is all around us. It's not perfectly stable. Earth is all underneath us. It's not perfectly stable. But relative to you and me, they're very stable, which is what's important to you and me because we are not very long for the earth. We're quite temporary, very, very temporary. So during this period that we are temporary, we will work mainly with water, fire, and air, but we will rely completely on space and earth to be the bookends of this very active and transitory existence that we're experiencing. So purohita could mean um, doing everything that is beneficial for everything that is about to happen. It could mean doing everything that is beneficial for the eastern direction, which, of course, is the most important direction from our perspective because that's where the sun comes from, and if there was no sun, things would be very different. Uh, or it could simply mean that um, the Purohita is the person who has, from the beginning, understood and been possessed by that which is hitha, that which is appropriate, by that quality of appropriateness, which makes him, her, or it fit, adhikara, we say in Sanskrit, fit to act as an intermediary between this world and the next world. However you want to look at it, that's what the fire does. So anybody who is a human purohita, who is a human priest, has to be a vessel for the fire has to be has to be possessed temporarily by the fire. And this, of course, is true of anyone who is doing any kind of worship of anything. If you're actually going to do worship of that anything, you have to be temporarily possessed by that anything, which is why they say in Sanskrit, well, in the tantras in Sanskrit, Shivo Bhutva Shivam Yajit, which means after you become Shiva, then worship Shiva. Which means before you were able to uh, not only identify Shiva, not only be able to connect directly to Shiva, but also be possessed by Shiva so that only Shiva is present in yourself and nobody else, 
Then you will be able to worship Shiva, because frankly, who are you? You're a limited human personality. What do you know? Almost nothing. What does Shiva know? Almost everything. And if you want to worship Shiva, who is the best person to know what Shiva likes? That would be Shiva. I mean, we have a hint. He likes to be in the cemetery. He likes to smear himself with the ashes from dead humans. He likes to have spirits around him. He's very fond of his wife and his two kids and his bull and his trident. So we know these things, but we know these things from our perspective. We don't know what they really mean to him. They could mean totally different things for all we know. So until we ourselves become Shiva, we are actually just sort of working in the direction of becoming Shiva so that we will be able to be possessed by Shiva so that we will then know exactly what Shiva would like. And then Shiva can worship Shiva and Shiva will recognize that Shiva is perceiving Shiva and sees not only Shiva in whatever that Shiva is worshiping, but also everything else that is not apparently being worshiped at that moment. And then there is Shiva everywhere. Om Namah Shivaya. But of course, we have to get to that stage beforehand. So what we should be doing as human beings, because we are trying to connect ourselves, because each one of us was born, and do not think that the human species has simply allowed you to be born because it wants you to be uh, spending all day long buying things on Amazon Prime and enjoying yourself, but rather instead that you should be preparing yourself so that you can act as a good conduit between the ground and sky. And if you're going to be a conduit, it's nice to be a conduit, but I mean, con the whole point of the conduit is that there should be something moving in it. Not all the time, because then the conduit gets stuffed up. And not none of the time, because then the conduit is empty. So the whole point of the conduit is that occasionally something should be flowing through it, and occasionally something should not. Now, in this particular case, once you get to be the condition of, let's say, Swami Nityananda, for example, the vast majority of the time, there's going to be things flowing through you, and only occasionally are you going to be sankuchita, constricted sufficiently that you return to what it is to be a limited human being with a limited personality. Occasionally, this will happen, especially in times of great stress, because that's when your body will tend to constrict back down on top of itself. And that's when your reptile brain will tend to take over. So on the subject of possessions, the many, many, almost innumerable, nearly innumerable possessions that everybody has all the time, one is we're all being possessed by our reptile brains. And our reptile brains are all making us work like reptiles. Reptiles are uh, interesting animals. None of them that I know of are warm, soft, and cuddly. You can be friendly with a reptile, but it's always good to remember that a reptile is still a reptile in the same way that you can be friendly with a tiger, but it's never prudent to turn your back on the tiger. Or if you do, to do what some of those fishermen in the Sundarbans do and wear a human face mask on the back of your head so the tiger thinks you're still looking at it even when your fat back has turned to it. Because a tiger is still a tiger, a snake is still a snake, a scorpion is still a scorpion, everything still has its own natural guna dharma, which is nature that possesses certain qualities. The nature of the reptile is the nature of the reptile brain, which is A, I have to stay alive all the time. No matter what, I'm going to stay alive. So when your body is put under a condition of extraordinary stress, you default down to the reptile brain, which says I'm going to stay alive I'm going to do whatever I have to do to stay alive. So we're always being possessed by that reptile brain, as are other all other vertebrates are as well. All vertebrates are being possessed by the reptile brain at certain points. Reptiles are always being possessed by the reptile brain because they are reptiles. That doesn't mean that certain reptiles can't be possessed by higher reptilian beings. And I'm thinking of this right now because... Um, a uh, friend of mine uh, just uh, yesterday, yesterday in India, which is uh, already, um, well, it would have been anyway, yesterday in India, which is yesterday here, um, uh, 
where he is at Vaidagrama, they organized for him a Sarpa Bali. Sarpa means a serpent. And Bali means, Bali means the sacrifice. Though there was a time when a Sarpa Bali meant you actually sacrificed the snake, but people rec- recognized that this was not a good way to do things for various reasons. So instead, it is a sacrifice of energy, attention, and nowadays it's done with a lot of flowers and sweet things to offer to the snake, who frankly, snakes don't really eat a lot of sweet things. But the point is that uh, an arrangement has been worked out because after all, we're not interested in the average reptile. We're interested in the very uh, refined uh, astral reptile, the Nagaraja the king of the sna- of the of all the reptiles in this part of the universe, and that Nagara, and I've seen this done many times. And there is a moment because the guy who does this is uh, uh, technically proficient and knows what he's doing, as the, is the case with many people in Kerala. Um, he there is there is always a moment if you're sensitive and you're paying attention when you can feel that the Nagaraja is there. And that's usually the moment just after they, they draw out, I mean, they create the image of a, of, a sna- of a cobra on the ground made out of little lamps. And then they light all the lamps and they light some camphor behind them. And usually that's the moment when the Nagaraja becomes present. So there is a connection that's been drawn between that part of the Nagaloka, the astral dimension where the Naga, the reptile beings live, and our uh, uh, dimension and our loka, and that um, that priest is acting at that moment as a purohita. He is creating that conduit so that for a few moments, that being can be present in this space that has been created for him and is uh, and because this has been done in this way for many decades or centuries, um, the uh, principle of inertia has facilitated this uh, sp- this uh, form to cr- to easel or more easily create this conduit. So, um, in order for this to work effectively, that priest, who would not be called a technically a purohita, but for our purposes, we can call him one, that priest has to be able to be transparent to, to be empty to, my mentor used to say, you have to create a spiritual vacuum in yourself, to create a spiritual vacuum so that that Nagaraja can come through him sufficiently to create that connection between that world and this world. So there has to be in that, um, uh, in, in the person who is performing that ritual, there has to be sufficient emptiness, shunyata, that that possession can occur at that moment so that that, and most of the possession is in the external thing, but a little bit of the possession has to be in the priest um, so that the uh, job can get done. And of course, um, sometimes it's the other way around, that most of the possession is in the individual and only a little bit of it is outside. Um, A a friend of uh, mine is named... Dr. Fred Smith. Dr. Smith has for many years been a professor of Indian religion and language and what have you at the University of Iowa. I met him in 1974 when he was doing his MA in Pune. And um, a few years ago, he wrote a 700-page book called The Self-Possessed. And it's all about going through the literature in sacred Indian scriptures and finding all the uh, references to possession. 
Because if you talk to most of the really orthodox, constricted, contracted Brahmins in India, they will say, oh my God, possession is horrible and terrible and you, we must stay away from it. It is only lower people do things like that. But if you look in, as <clears throat> Dr. Fred did, you look very carefully, you see that in fact, possession is everywhere and, and has been for thousands of years. And, um, and it's, it's sometimes not full possession by an entire personality. Sometimes it's just a voice. There's a passage in the Veda where it talks about some, some lady was possessed by an asura-killing voice. So whenever there was a problem, they would bring her over and she would align herself with the voice and then the voice would speak out and all the asuras, all the demons in the neighborhood would be bowled over like nine pins or 10 pins or whatever you're bowling over. So, um, and even today, if you go to India, on the surface, it looks like everything is, oh, there's a bunch of temples and everything is, you know, it's all very, and the priests are demanding money and so on. And that's what most of the priests are kind of useless nowadays. But if you look a little further underneath, you will find that, in fact, in every part of India, possession is still going on in different ways. Um, uh, the, the places I know more about it are, are in Kerala and in the Himalaya. And in the Himalaya, um, many, if not most, villages have a local devata. A devata means a god or goddess. It comes from the root diva, which means to shine. So literally, a devata is just a shining not in the Jack Nicholson sense, but that was also a shining. It was just a very, the, it was not the, the light that it was coming from was the, the reflection of the glow from the infernal realms rather than from the celestial realms. So a, a devata is a shining thing. Each of these different um, uh, uh, Villages has a devata, and most of the village, any devata that is, um, has reached a certain stat, devata status will have an oracle. And the oracles work in different ways, but in my part of the Himalaya, and I think it's true in probably other parts, um, there will be what's called an utsava murti, or it's called that in other parts of the country, but an image of the devata usually made out of brass or sometimes some other metal. And um, you put this in a palki, a palanquin, a very thin one that's very long, that, and the handles of the palanquin go on the shoulders of two men. Uh, I believe only always men for this purpose. Um, and they have other possession rituals too, but I mean, this is one example. And um, then there's a third person who is the interpreter. And so if you're interested in asking a question of the oracle, you will come to the oracle and you will ask the question. And then the palanquin will start to move. The men are, they're not supposed, they're just supposed to be holding it. So it's supposed to be moving and sometimes it moves very violently and enthusiastically. And the guy who is, the third guy is interpreting the movement of the oracle. And when this is done properly, you get good results. And if the people who are involved are not allowing themselves to be open to the devata, then the results are not so good. Um, there is a town in Himachal Pradesh called Mandi, M-A-N-D-I. And in Mandi, I think it's immediately after Mahashivaratri, uh, which is in February or March every year, changing according to the lunar calendar. So I believe it's the week after Mahar Shivaratri, and I think it starts just after Shivaratri. There is a, like the Kumbha Mela, there's a Devata Mela. So the Devatas from all the villages in the neighborhood come to have a festival. And they will all come with all their, their oracle men, and everybody will be there, and you can go and you can ask questions, and they work, so people come there. And of course, it's a festival, so you know, you come and you buy toys for your kids and you have cotton candy and what have you. 
And um, there is also a devata judge. And if it turns out that your devata has not been doing his work, and his work means like if you come to him and say, you know, I need some help, and the devata says, I will help you, and you don't get any help, then you can complain to the devata judge. And if the devata judge, according to his oracle, decides that this devata has done wrong things, then he will be, a sentence will be passed, and the sentence will be, no offerings will be given to this devata until he reforms and he is, you know, until we're satisfied that he is done his, doing his job properly. So this is just one way in which this particular kind of reality has developed. It's all a matter of evolution. Things develop in different ways. Up there, things have developed in this way. And uh, some very unusual uh, information, I've seen some very unusual information come out of these devatas. That doesn't mean they always work, and we'll come soon to the question of how to determine whether some information is accurate or not, even though, of course, today we don't worry about that because everything is alternative and nothing is actual, except that actually there are things that are actual. So how do we determine that? We'll come back to that. But for the moment, the fact is that people are using these. Um, there was probably 10 or 15 years ago, there was a proposal to put a ski resort in Himachal Pradesh in a particular area. But the government, being a sensible government, decided what they would do is they would have an election. So they polled all the devatas in the surrounding area. A hundred devatas were polled. And the vote was 70 to 30, no. So the government, cleverly, said, we will put the ski resort somewhere else because the devatas did not agree. Now, we could argue that this is simply a psychological thing, and maybe it was. But, of course, the government is not... The government is made of human beings, and these human beings are from the state, and they're not so stupid to think that such things do not have some reality to them. And... They would not be, I expect, very interested to have 70 out of 100 devatas irate with them. Usually it's not so good to have one irate with them, much less 70. So this is one method by which people get involved with um, possession, not necessarily of themselves, but with members of the community. And in at least in the, uh, in the village near to where um, I stay when I'm in the Himalaya, um, the, uh, the people who do the oracle business changes every, every year, I think, to make sure that um, there's things rel- are relatively, you know, that, th- that you don't get comfortable being the voice of the oracle and then start to think about how great it would be to get more uh, offerings and, uh, and that your human personality doesn't get too influential. In Kerala, they have a different sort of system. It's called the Tayyam system. And the Tayyam system is um, <clears throat> where you have and generally, it's run by different families. And so each family that does this has a particular, uh, uh, there's a group of astral beings that can be invoked in a tayyam. And usually each family has one. And once a year, they invite someone who almost always is from the Erdava uh, uh, community, the community of people who are tadi tappers. They climb up palm trees and incise the top of palm trees and let the juice flow into a um, the earthenware pot. And the next morning before dawn, you bring down the pot. If you drink it immediately, it's very sweet, very good for your kidneys, etc. If you wait just a few hours, it has fermented into tadi, and, um, which is very alcoholic. So these people ordinarily are very low on the caste, uh, in the caste hierarchy. And the caste hierarchy in Kerala is very, very stratified. But when they come 
and act as vehicles for that possession, then they will be worshipped even by the highest caste Brahmins if it is those Brahmins whose family that they are uh, has hired them and which happens, which is not just they've been hired on a family basis generally for generations at a time. So during that moment, when the individual is being possessed by the deity, they are regarded as being far more pure and holy than the Brahmins. And as soon as that's over, things go back to the way they were before. There is one temple, if you ever happen to be in Kerala, there's one temple where they do a payam every afternoon. I can't remember the name of it, but it's very, you can just go to, um, it's a city called uh, Kannur. It's in North Kerala. And um, the interesting thing about this particular temple is that um, the offering, if you want to offer something to the temple, the offering is an image of a dog. Why is this? Nobody knows. They have the stories about why it may be. But in any event, all you have to do is go to Kanur and say, where's the dog temple with the afternoon tayam? And somebody will tell you. India is a funny place. So these are, there, there are plenty of other uh, methods and rituals and so on all around the whole country. And for that matter, all around in different parts of the world, people are getting possessed all the time for ritual purposes. And at least in India, this goes back to that thousands of years ago when uh, the Vedas began to be uh, manifested from rishis who would take Soma, go into the astral world with the help of the fire, and just like shamans in the, uh, in the Amazon do now, they... The shaman goes up into the astral world, collects a song, uh, in some languages it's called an ikado, and brings the ikado back down and uses that ikado for healing and for other purposes that are beneficial, hopefully, to whoever that person is working with. And that's what the rishis did also. They took their soma, which was an intoxicating thing. They went up into the astral world. They brought it back down. And the fire was assisting them to do this because the job of the fire is to turn things that are solid and hard and earth-connected into non-solid, not hard, and connected to the astral world. 